Today's sermon is the second sermon in our new series, Didn't See That Coming. And throughout this series, we are looking at chapters 40 to 55 in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And I want you to know that we had good reasons to look carefully at these 15 chapters in Isaiah right now. Uh, This wasn't a random decision. You see, we knew that these 15 chapters were originally written specifically to help God's people as they were living through a time that they didn't see coming. And that time was the 70-year period that we now call the exile. Well, the exile was a time when a good number of Jewish people were forced by the Babylonians to travel about 1,700 miles away from their home in Judah and live as captives in Babylon. And while there is a huge difference between the details of the time of the exile and the times that we're living through today, one thing is certainly the same. Everyone can use some help in navigating a time that they didn't see coming, and that is exactly what Isaiah 40 to 55 was written to do. These verses were written to give us hope and to give us help in a time that we didn't see coming. Now last week, Barry opened up this series by giving us some historical background on this part of Isaiah. And he talked about the best ways to read and study an Old Testament book of prophecy like Isaiah. And he also showed us how an ancient book like Isaiah can still speak to us today. And if you missed last week's message, I recommend that you take the time to listen to what Barry said. Everything that he said was important. But in my mind, uh, probably the most important thing that uh, Barry said last week was this. He said, yes, we are calling this series Didn't See That Coming. We could have just as easily titled this series God Is Still Working. Because contrary to what a lot of people might be thinking even right now, Isaiah 40 and f- to 55 tells us just this. It tells us that even if the circumstances seem dark and dire, possibly even hopeless, the truth is that God is still working. Now, before we get into the passage today, I want to just say a quick prayer. Lord, we are uh, looking into your word. I pray that you'll give me the right things to say that I will represent your heart well, and that we will, at the end of this time, be encouraged by your love for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today uh, we're looking at a very powerful passage. It's Isaiah 46. But before we get into that passage, Barry said, he did say last week that I would be giving you a little bit more information about the exile of the Jewish people in Babylon. Uh, The Babylonians conquered the nation of Judah in 586 B.C. And after they destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem, like everything, they just tore the whole thing down. Then they gathered up a good number of the conquered Israelites and they hauled them back to Babylon. And oddly, this was the normal pattern of the Babylonians. They would destroy an enemy's capital city and then they would take a good number of the conquered people back to Babylon with them. But the Babylonians didn't, they didn't randomly just pick anybody to haul that 1,700 miles back to Babylon. No, they chose prominent citizens. They took the professionals, 
They took business people. They took the priests. They took the craftsmen. Anybody that they knew to be wealthy, they took with them. They took them with them. And interestingly, they also took all the musicians with them. And from what we can tell, they carried about 10,000 of these prominent, talented, elite Jewish people into exile in Babylon. And they did so in the hope that these prominent Jews would simply melt into the Babylonian culture and that the Jewish culture would just disappear as they all became Babylonians. Now, one interesting aspect of the exile, though, that worked against any hope that these Jews would soon melt into Babylonian society was this, that once these 10,000 Jewish exiles had arrived in Babylon, for some reason, the Babylonian leaders allowed them to settle in the same geographical area And what this made possible was the opportunity for all of these Jews to get together and to maintain their Jewish heritage. And while the Babylonians had not allowed the Jewish exiles to bring their sacred religious texts with them, all of the scrolls that contained the early books that we now call the front end of the Old Testament, they couldn't take those books with them. But the Babylonians did allow the Jews to gather and to talk about the things that they remembered from those sacred books. And they let them get together to sing their psalms. And they let them get together just to keep as much of the Jewish culture and religion alive as possible. And the Jews even gave a name to these kinds of meetings. They called them synagogo. That's a Greek word that simply means a gathering. And these synagogue meetings soon became the lifeblood of the Jewish nation. They were gatherings focused on their God and figuring out how they might return to Jerusalem. But even though they could gather, and even though they could sing together, and even though they could talk about their holy books, they still deeply longed for home. To most Jews, having to live in Babylon was nothing less than tragic, and it was a terrible circumstance, and it seemed like it would never end. And the chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 46 in Isaiah, was written specifically to speak to these downcast, homesick, despairing exiles during the lowest, darkest, and most hopeless days of their time in Babylon. And we do know this, that all the while the Babylonians were forcing the Jewish captives to perform all sorts of tasks for the Babylonians, the Jewish craftsmen, were building new buildings for the Babylonians and the Jewish musicians were providing entertainment for the Babylonians and the Jewish professionals were overseeing the Babylonian estates and even governmental districts. And it all seemed like a dreadful dream with no foreseeable end to the Jews. And into that darkness, into the darkness bursts Isaiah's words, the words that we find in chapter 46 of Isaiah. And would you, would you turn to that chapter in your Bible? We want you all to have your Bible with you. Turn to Isaiah chapter 46. 
Okay, now I don't want this to be confusing, but chapter 46 is actually a part of one long Hebrew poem that starts in verse 18 of chapter 45, and it runs through the 13th verse of chapter 46. Chapter headings don't mean anything. So this is one long poem that actually starts in chapter 45. And I want to tell you a couple of things about this long poem. First off, it is not the prophet speaking for God or about God. This whole poem is literally God speaking for himself. It's God talking directly at us. And secondly, this entire poem is filled with raw emotion. Take my word for it, the Hebrew in this poem gives this emotional quality away because it is written in short, choppy words. It reads like someone who is really worked up, if you get what I mean. In fact, if I could have named this poem, I would have named it something like this. Hey, 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 wake up, people. I'm talking to you. And then the poem would start. And as I said, this poem, it starts in Isaiah 45, 18. And boy, does it start like a hammer. God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I publicly proclaim bold promises. I do not whisper obscurities in some dark corner. I would not have told the people of Israel to seek me if I could not be found. I, the Lord, speak only what is true and declare only what is right. Now, that's a pretty strong beginning. At least if you ask me, that's pretty strong stuff. And you can look at the rest of chapter 45 later, but it all reads like this. And it's easy to see that God is not kidding around. And then we read this in verse 1 of chapter 46. Bel and Nebo, the gods of Babylon, bow as they are lowered to the ground. They're being hauled away on ox carts. The poor beasts stagger under the weight. Both the idols and their owners are bowed down. The gods cannot protect the people, and the people cannot protect the gods. They go off into captivity together. Every New Year's Day, the people of Babylon celebrated what we might call a Middle Eastern Mardi Gras. And the highlight of the big party was when a pair of highly decorated carts or big wagons pulled by equally highly decorated oxen carried the two idols, Bel, who was the chief god of the Babylonians. You've heard the name Baal or Baal, or the same name, the main god, and then Bel's son, Nebo, or have you heard of a king named Nebuchadnezzar? He even put Nebo's name in his name. Well, they would haul these two big carts with these big idols on them through the streets of Babylon. And so every New Year's Day, the Jews would suffer through seeing the entire city celebrating Bel and Nebo as the most powerful gods in the universe. And after a while, it started to make the Jews wonder if these 
idol-worshiping Babylonians might not be right about whose God was the most powerful God in the universe. They weren't seeing much from their God. Bel and Nebo certainly seemed to be winning the most powerful God in the universe war. Well, God clearly wasn't having any of this. And so in those verses we read earlier, he just told his people straight up, Bel and Nebo are nothing and they can do nothing. And then God painted a picture of a coming time when these impotent gods would be carried away into humiliating captivity of their own. And speaking of being carried, look at what God says to the Israelites in verses three and four. Listen to me, descendants of Jacob, all you who remain in Israel. I just wanna say when it says remain in Israel, he's not talking about back in the country. He's talking about those who have stayed faithful to being followers of God and not given in to the Babylonian gods. So all you who remain in Israel, I have cared for you since you were born. Yes, I carried you before you were born. I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you. I will care for you. I will carry you along and save you. God says, I carried you were an infant. It's interesting that he starts with saying, naming a time when everyone needs to be carried. And he promises that he will still be willing to carry them when they were old, when their hair is gray. And this is another vulnerable time when many, many people will need help in simply getting around. God says, I will be there on both ends. And also the way the Hebrew reads, it assumes that God is saying that he will carry them from the time of infancy all the way into old age. And that includes even a time of exile. One interesting aside here in these two verses, in these verses, we find God using the word I 10 times. It's like, I will, I have, I am, I, 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 all through here 10 times, he says this in this very short bit of scripture. And by the way, the number 10 is the biblical number for perfection. And the use of 10 eyes in this short passage tells me that God was serious when he said, I have been present. I am still present. And I will be present to carry and care for you. Then he goes on, God goes on in verses five to seven, and he just rails on the foolishness of people like the Babylonians who would hire a craftsman to fashion a God so they could carry it around on their shoulders, hoping that this God would answer their prayers. My goodness, can you feel God's contempt in his voice in these passages or what? And then he gets to his biggest point of all. Listen to what he says in verses eight and nine. God says, do not forget this. Keep it in mind. Remember this, you guilty ones. And by guilty ones, I believe that God is talking about those who were guilty of wondering if their God was as powerful as Bel and Nebo. And God goes on to say, remember the things that I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, 
and there is none like me. God says, remember the things I've done in the past. What he wanted was he wanted his people to take the time to think about all the times that God had rescued the Israelites throughout all of those years in the past. Picture this with me for a moment. Okay, we've got a big gathering of Jewish people. They're all sitting around and they've just heard um, these words from Isaiah when it says, remember the things that I did for you in the past. And so they start talking amongst themselves and someone says, okay, um, what has God done for us in the past? And someone else says, well, he miraculously made us a nation by giving Abraham and Sarah a son when she was 90 years old. And then someone adds, and nobody saw that one coming, did they? And then another voice says, well, God saved us from the Egyptians by parting the Red Sea for us and then bringing that Red Sea back on over the Egyptians. And everybody nods their head, yes, yes, he did that, he did that. And then somebody else says, and nobody saw that one coming, did they? And then somebody asked, didn't God uh, make the mighty walls of Jericho fall down for us? And now they go, yes, he did, yes, he did, yes, he did. And then someone also adds, and nobody saw that one coming either, did they? This is the kind of conversation God wanted to hear from his people. It was a conversation that could have gone on for a long time. But God interrupts this remembering in verse 10 when he says, only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything that I plan will come to pass for I do whatever I wish. And then God tells them his plan. He says, I will call a swift bird of prey from the east, a leader from a distant land who will do my bidding. I have said what I would do, and I will do it. Now, we know from history that the Jews were expecting that if any help was going to come and deliver them from their exile in Babylon, it would come from someplace in the west, someplace back near Jerusalem. The east was the wrong direction in their minds. And so God saying that he was calling a leader that would come from the east to do this bidding, it was something that nobody would have seen coming. And we actually know who this bird of prey from the east was. He was Cyrus, the ruler of Persia. He's called Cyrus the Great. He would have been the last person the Jews would have ever expected to deliver them from exile. You see, the urbane Babylonians and their refined Jewish captives thought that the Persians were a bunch of ragtag, unsophisticated nomads. In fact, they thought that this group of nomads were just a little better than animals. Plus, the Persians had a very odd religion. They were all Zoroastrians. And uh, this was a religion that held that everything in the entire universe was divided into two groups. Everything could be either, everything was either good or evil. And Zoroastrians fully believed that these two groups, good and evil, were on a collision course 
that would determine, there was an apocalyptic battle coming soon that would soon determine whether good or evil was going to rule everything forever. And Cyrus, who considered himself to be the earthly leader of the very good, he set out to conquer the entire world in the belief that he could make the world so good that evil wouldn't have a chance when that big battle came. And so when Cyrus defeated the Babylonians and discovered that there were thousands of Jews living in Babylon who'd had their temple destroyed and they'd been forced to live in exile, he had a religious vision. He had a religious reason to immediately send them back home to rebuild Jerusalem and its temple. You see, he believed that if he could, if he could make the Jewish exiles feel an obligation to the good Zoroastrians, then when the day of that big battle arrived, they would all stand with him. That was his thinking. Now I'm just saying, God saving the Jews from exile by sending a Persian Zoroastrian nomad on a mission to conquer the world? No one would have ever seen that coming. And from what it looks like in the, in the text here, some of the Jews, when they heard Isaiah's word about a swift bird coming from the east to save them, they must have raised their eyebrows like, come on. And the reason I think that this was the reaction to God's promise of a savior from the east is because God's last words in chapter 46 are powerful words of not only promise, but great intent. He says, I am ready to set things right, not in some distant future, but right now I am ready to save Jerusalem and show my glory to Israel. God was letting them know that he was still working, even if it wasn't going to be the way that they'd all expected. He said what he was going to do, and you know what? We know now from history, he did it. He did it. The passage that Barry looked at last week said it, and this week's passage says it again. God is still working. These verses tell us that even if we may not sense it right now, his promise to carry us and care for us, to never leave us or forsake us, is still as true as it has ever been, no matter how dire things might I just returned earlier this week from two weeks in northern Michigan. Uh, Jennifer and I have spent time on Walloon Lake every summer for about 40 years. And it's a great place of retreat for us. And while I was away, I had two weeks of quiet time to think about this sermon and specifically about God's command that I should remember the things he has done for me in the past. I am now at an age where my vision of things is long-term. I can see much of my life as a completed whole, or at least I can see the many chapters of my life from beginning to end. And I can say with great confidence that God has carried me from when I was an infant to these days of grayer hair. 
this is not the time for me to talk about the details of my life, but I will say that there have been many times when I felt trapped or I've been confused or I've been lost in hopelessness and then something would be said to me or something would be offered to me or something simply happened to me that I didn't see coming and in those unexpected, unforeseen moments, God rescued me, he cared for me, and he carried me and my family into his future. And my bet is that this is true for many of you as well. The problem, at least for me, is that I don't work hard enough at remembering those times when God parted the Red Sea in my life, or he knocked down the Jericho walls in my life, or he brought an unexpected Cyrus into my life, and I lived through a time that only God could have caused that one to happen. We are all living through a time of great tension great division, great fear, and great emptiness. I just spent two weeks in one of the most beautiful, peaceful, isolated spaces on the planet, and yet everyone who gets to live up there was either worked up or nervous or agitated or fearful or defiant, just like the people here. The chaos is everywhere. And yet while we're in the midst of a time that we didn't see coming, I know that God is still working. God's intentions for his world have not changed. Nothing has caught him off guard. And our God is going to keep on working in ways that bring healing to the broken places in his world. Yes, God is still working and he's asking us to trust him, trust that he loves us, and then join him as he continues to bring peace and light into the dark chaos of our world. Last week, when I was in the great space of northern Michigan, I heard these words. Hey, 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 listen up, Tim. Remember who is talking to you. And it gave me hope. And then I heard these words, and I'm sharing them with you because they are true for everyone, every one of you. Listen to these words of God. God says this to you. Listen to me. Listen to me. I have cared for you since you were born. Yes, I carried you before you were born. I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you. I will care for you. I will carry you along. And I will save you. 